Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I'm one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I'm the other co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. And we have got yet another great poem for you today on this beautiful Friday. It is a poem by the incredible poet Jenny Shia, who, if you don't know, came out with her debut full-length collection last year, I believe, 2018, called Eye Level, which was published by Grey Wolf Press. Eye Level by Jenny Shia was nominated and a finalist for the National Book Award last year. Her book also won the Walt Whitman Award. She's killing it. And this poem called Private Property, I love. Yeah, and I think it's totally fascinating. I'm super into it. Boom. That's all we need to do. We just need to be super into it. Okay, I think I just got to read it. Private Property by Jenny Shia. Exhaustion slides from the body through the lips first. The invisible are flush with it. They drowse on blue subway seats. Heads bowed, yes, but to what? This island of concrete and glass tied by rough hands the smell of this body among other bodies, negatives of another's pleasure. All of us living on loan, yet only some grasp the arrangement. Those shuttled back and forth, drifting to other far places. Underground, the window is also a mirror. It reflects sleep chasing bodies back into the borderless empire of the interior. Wow. It's like, it's moving along and you're like, okay, okay, this is very interesting. And then that end comes and you're like, oh. I mean, it's big time stuff. It's big time stuff. Though we may be geographically disparate now, Connor and I do share the distinction of both having at different points in our lives lived in New York City and this, uh, We'll do our quick narrative rundown of the poem. But one of the things is that it very quickly mentions the subway. And so as as two people, I think, who both spent time in New York, the image of the New York subway is that's kind of an indelible experience and one that I felt vividly conjured by this poem. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, totally. Yeah. And we're both uh, probably exhausted uh, frequently while on the subway, which Oofa is, uh... doofa was I ever. <laughs> Um, You know, one thing to say about it. So this is a prose poem, which we can get into more things to say about that later. But a rough summary, as Jack was talking about, the speaker is on the subway. They drowse on blue subway seats. We gather that it's probably Manhattan because we have the phrase, this island of concrete and glass tied by rough hands. Concrete Island seems it's like pretty iconically Manhattan. The speaker is on the subway. Everybody's tired. And that's kind of like all that happens in a plot sense. The speaker is thinking about things, you know, that and is noticing different senses. So it's like the heads are bowed. Yes, but to what? So we, we have the vision of tired people with kind of slumped smelling bodies among other bodies. 
shuttled back and forth, drifting to other far places, just kind of like the travel of all the subways. And then we end with this kind of underground, the window is also a mirror. Yeah, I feel like that's, in terms of just literal stuff, that's pretty much what's going on. Yeah, exhaustion on the subway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Also, poem was written as a commission for the uh, 92Y, which is a a great arts organization in New York. And it was for their, quote, New Colossus project, which is based off the Emma Lazarus poem, The New Colossus, which has that kind of famous lines, you know, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, and was sort of, you know, famously about the Statue of Liberty. And Um, is, in fact, on the Statue of Liberty. And is, in fact, on the Statue of Liberty. If you want to get real close talking with that poem, just Google New Colossus comma controversy and you can find out all sorts of stuff about the placement of a comma or the lack thereof in that poem. It's a whole hot topic. Yeah, and she also read at the 92Y with Tracy K. Smith and Javier Zamora and read this poem, actually, and she was introducing it and sort of said how her poem, she was thinking about the national narrative in the same way that the Emma Lazarus poem, The New Colossus, is thinking about national narratives. But she said sort of specifically, she's thinking about omissions in that narrative or what we choose or forget to see. Curious, hey, what you thought about that? And I don't know, any initial impressions that you had? I am glad to know that she said that because it fits with an idea that I was playing with as relates to this poem, which is there's a lot of stuff in it that I think we'll get into about interior and exterior. And, and that is brought in in that first line where, or the first sentence, I should say, because the lines are, it's a prose poem, but uh, the first sentence, exhaustion slides from the body through the lips first. So you already have this idea of the lips and the interior of the body versus the exterior. And when that comes together with the idea of private property, you get into this notion of bodily autonomy versus the world, all that kind of stuff. But what really struck me is the beginning of that next sentence, the invisible are flush with it, the it seeming to be exhaustion, they drowse on blue subway seats. And looking at both the Emma Lazarus poem that this is in conversation with, and now that I know her comments on this, talking about who's in the national narrative, who's out of it. And again, referring back to the title of private property, I'm thinking mostly about homelessness and that the invisible are flush with exhaustion very often in New York or probably in most cities with mass transit. There are a lot of homeless people who end up sleeping in subways because it is, in fact, a like public space. It's a place where you can shelter from the elements with a level of like some level of security. I mean, we should mention private property. Our contemporary concept of it comes from John Locke in his second treatise on government. And the basic idea is that in the state of nature, individuals can appropriate resources and land to themselves, and it becomes their property, private property that they own and can stake out. So particularly thinking about that, and particularly in the context of New York, where there is an overabundance of housing that many people do not have access to. And if we take the invisible who are referenced to be people who are homeless, who are often treated as though they are not people or treated as invisible, even on subways. The the poem says they drowse on blue subway seats, heads bowed, yes, but to what? Negatives of another's pleasure. That again seems to reference somebody who might be in distress as opposed to somebody who is having a good time. Yeah, that's that's kind of where 
I went with it. And then thinking about both how the title reflects on a reading like that and the idea of private property and the kind of destructive side of private property. And then the big question that I kept returning to is like, what is private property in general and in the world of this poem? So it takes place on the subway, which is public transit, a fairly public place. But what is private to you even in a public place? And it seemed to me like the way the poem discusses bodies or the body, if we want to say that, that seems to remain private. That seems to still hold on to that borderless empire of the interior. That seems to me to reference an individual who is still private unto themselves, even in a public place. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. But that's sort of where I initially went with it. Uh, and particularly, as I said, in light of what you were saying about how she introduced the poem, that felt I felt I felt like I was maybe more onto something than I initially did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Wow. Yeah, there is um there's a lot there. Yeah, in terms of the title private property, I think you're right to like really zone in on that, especially because it's, you know, it's an abstract title in a in a kind of way and it's something that obviously it's permeating throughout the whole poem, but it's not something that's like titled, you know, we just talked about a poem called My Grandmother's House, and it was about the speaker's grandmother's house, you know. So there's a kind of oblique, somewhat slanted relationship with the content of the poem and the title, which I think makes it sort of more important to think about the title specifically. Um, Thinking about that, I'm thinking about A, just this poem seems to be obviously a critique of either private property itself or the systems and the situations that sort of give rise to it or privilege it as a kind of thing. And it makes me think about we're in capitalism. People toss around the phrase late capitalism. We're in a, the neoliberal era where everything is becoming increasingly privatized. You know, including there's the, mass transit systems in many cities. Including mass transit. And we have the, you know, the proliferation of things like City Bike and Divi in Chicago. And those are kind of like public-private partnerships. Um, you know, we have the rise of charter schools, which are you know, public schools that are, you know, privately managed or whatever. We've been in capitalism per se for a long time, but we're in a particular place where even our education, I was struck by the line, you know, all of us living on loan. Obviously, I, <laughs> having a fair amount of student debt myself, I am quite literally living on loan as our, you know, I mean, I think what there's $1.5 trillion of student debt right now. Even more so, you know, the very structure of housing, you know, is in the form of a mortgage in which you are living on a loan. You know, you you have the 30-year mortgage, like the whole, even the kind of positive take on the quote unquote American dream is about loans and about living in a kind of structured debtor relationship to something, which then made me think about the heads bowed, yes, but to what, which I thought was such a nice line. Because A, it's such a great apt description of just tired people. Maybe they're just tired and on their way to work. But as you were saying, you know, there's a lot of people experiencing homelessness who sleep in the subway or their heads are bowed. But yes, to what, then suddenly the bowed 
becomes this kind of like, you know, you're bowing to a leader or your authority figure or whatever. But to me, it seems like one of the pernicious, like insidious aspects of capitalism is, you know, <laughs> well, funnily enough, we're recording this on Monday, the Monday after we won't get into it, but uh, the final episode of Game of Thrones, a great... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of mixed feelings. No, there are no mixed feelings. There's one feeling. A lot of negative feelings. But certainly it was a masterclass in the wonders of monarchy and why everyone loves uh, kings and queens and clear figureheads. As I posted to Twitter, <laughs> Game of Thrones or how I learned to stop worrying and love the Electoral College. Because if you just get a group of elites in a room, they'll pick a leader. And then... Like, democracy, lol, good joke, smartest guy here. I would also point out that the MTA itself is largely funded by the issuance of municipal debt in the form of bonds. And I worked at the law firm that helps them do that. So we got an inside scooper. Yeah, no big deal. Well, and, and part of what this also is about, as you were saying, like, a lot of public authorities and public utilities run because they can issue debt. And so access to the debt market and this notion of all of us living on loan, like the MTA, Washington's transit authority, power authorities, like housing authorities, all of these markets that individuals have access to because of debt, even the institutions that run this stuff and make it easier for, in for individuals to access it can do that because they themselves issue debt it's just debt all the way down it's all about debt i mean we're in the era where vulture funds can basically seize boats of sovereign nations in ports because the countries owe the companies debts and we're in we're in a place where even debt is even superseding the logic of the the nation state in some sense and which sort of gets to the point of like, I feel like there's an eerie sense of you don't know, not that this is true in the our romantic idea of what a monarchy is. It's like, you know who the leader is and you know who the problem is and you know who. And it seems like now, even even though we may rightly blame our president for many things, there's many other forces that are nebulously arranged in offshore accounts that we just simply aren't aware of. And I feel like there's an element of that sort of going on in that line, heads bowed, yes to but to what. And recently there was an episode of The Dig, which is a great lefty podcast through Jacobin, that was about gentrification in real estate. And I learned that 60% of the world's wealth is held in real estate. That's an incredible statistic. Which is pretty large. And some even larger percent of money laundered in the world, I believe, is done through real estate acquisitions and sales. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. And this is uh, the classic argument of everybody's favorite wild intellectual Savoy Zizek, because he's all about having something to hate. And his whole thing is that you know, the current iteration of capitalism allows everybody to continue consuming in ways that feel like they are giving back. And he always talks about how like chains like Starbucks will, you know, you buy a cup of coffee, $2 goes to fund some charity somewhere or like Tom's, the shoe brand, you buy a pair and they donate a pair. His constant example for that is chocolate laxatives where you have all the taste of chocolate, but it's not having any of the negative effects for you as an individual. <laughs> 
but that can very much be a way to exist in the world and to turn consumption into an altruistic act, but one that continues to prop up the system as opposed to breaking the wheel, one might say. Um, wow. But here's the thing. If you want to break the wheel, it doesn't matter. You're going to get stabbed by your nephew because <laughs> revolutionaries are dangerous and you have to just install as many mediocre white men as possible <laughs> to maintain the status quo because change is scary and bad. That's the ideological lesson in Game of Thrones. But what I really like about this poem is that it follows up that we're all living on loan by saying, yet only some grasp the arrangement. And what I love about that as a way of describing is that it both speaks to individuals who might see through the sham and critique it, but also identifies that there are people who understand how this game is played and are playing it. So it's both about those who would critique capitalism, but also those who understand the arrangement and maybe are the ones who manage the financial markets or who are using them effectively, whether for better or worse purposes. I really like how that line does double duty there. And I also yeah. think the invisible can be a pretty broad category. I know I specifically mentioned homelessness at the beginning, but I think it's meant to be maybe a little bit broader than that. And just sort of like those of us who are out here living our lives who are not necessarily going to be, I don't know, on the evening news or star in an HBO hit series about dragon's magic and a <laughs> mythical land. Yes, those are the highly visible. No, I think you're right. I think it could easily include, I mean, certainly broadly anybody, but also even, you know, people who work two, three jobs, four jobs, and, you know, they're coming back from their night shift and they're going to go to their other job that's in another borough or whatever. You know, those are also exhausted people. And even people who are you know, I mean, New York is one of those crazy places where it's like, like I was privileged enough to be paralegal when I was living there. Yet, it still felt like a hellscape. And I still was very tired. And I could barely afford to live there, even though I was in a 450 square foot apartment with two other people. And obviously, Manhattan and New York, you know, and Brooklyn or whatever are the, also the kind of the paragons of gentrification as a problem and private property as a as a physical spatial problem that's like pushing poor people and people of color and black people you know out of their own communities and also it's interesting thinking of all of us living on loan and the the sentence that comes before is negatives of another's pleasure which i think is such an interesting line because it's you know like the heads bowed yes to what is one of those figurative moments that is really rooted in the literal scene you know that i can kind of picture it and then i can sort of picture the leap that the speaker is making the negatives of another's pleasure feels more immediately figurative, I guess, you know, so what I mean, negative, we're thinking about a photographic negative, right, where before you develop it, or at least this is one reading of it, before you develop it, you have the negative of it, which is kind of that inverted black and white, weird kind of thing, which made me think of, because then I was like, okay, well, there's no like, photos here, except for the fact that then I was thinking about what she has said when she was introducing the poem of you know, what we choose or forget to see. And the book, Eye Level, which I've read much of, but not the whole thing, as you can guess from the title, is very concerned with sight and observation and the visual. And so the photograph 
also makes sense in that sense. But when you were talking about those who grasp the arrangement, the money managers, it makes me think of, you know, it's not just people in debt, like there's an intimate relationship between the debtor and the creditor or the, the plundered and the plunderer. Like negatives of another's pleasure feels to me like this kind of, well, there's people who are having pleasure who are, you know, reaping the benefits of the late capitalist excess, whatever. And those who are the invisible, the exhausted on the subway are the kind of negative. They are the the ones that reflect the opposite of it, but they're tied together in the same arrangement. But they are the the one that is developed to be used into the oppressive person or the, the person having pleasure, you know. So there's that kind of like sort of specific relationship. I don't know if that makes sense, but I was kind of like, it's interesting that that the negatives of another's pleasure is right before all of us living on loan. I think that makes a lot of sense. And particularly because the individuals who are being described are underground and the people who, you know, are in positions of power and privilege and have money are often, I think it'd be easy to imagine in penthouses or in skyscrapers, either at work or at home. And so it does set up particularly because mirrors and reflections and negatives are a theme running through the poem to imagine the whole city. If you could see it on a flat plane above and below ground, you could almost imagine this mirror of the wealthy who can exploit high in their towers and then the people who work to make that possible underground in the subway heading home. It created sort of that visual for me and it really does I also love the way the sound moves in that negatives of another's pleasure. The N in negative picks up the end in another, and then the er at the end of another picks up the your in pleasure. And so it just kind of like do 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 do. It's a very smooth sonic experience yeah. that's really cool. Where another is this cool bridge word between the other two. Yeah, and negative has the eh in the pleasure a little bit. Um, yeah, as another yeah, it does connection yeah you kind of feel sonically pushed through that and it's a short sentence too i think it's the shortest one in the in the whole poem i think you're right yeah but and you and not only that but you feel like you're moving through it very quickly at least i do because of the way the sounds kind of flow into each other one thing that is also very interesting about this poem i feel like we've we've talked we haven't gotten to all of it but we've we've talked a lot about kind of the what of the poem or, you know, the kind of themes or the, the subjects that that's being described or is meant or implied or resonant with. But one thing that's that's interesting about this poem is like the way, you know, the kind of the tone and the perspective of the piece. It's like kind of one thing that we talk about incessantly on Close Talking and I think is probably a pet obsession of mine is the idea of distance and, you know, that there's often a kind of distance that we can tease out between or that exists between the speaker and the subject or the speaker and the poet. And by exploring this distance, you know, we can kind of like, we can get our own perspective on the the sort of subjects that's being discussed. And one sort of clear kind of distance here is that the speaker is very absent from the poem, at least explicitly. There's no capital I, I in the poem at all. There's no like, I see this or I think this or whatever. And furthermore, bodies are kind of, they're both like, they're very material, like they're, but they're not like people 
if that makes sense. They're more bodies in some kind of way. You know, they have like exhaustion slides from the body through the lips first is the first sentence, which I think is such a really interesting way of saying that. And we have the body, right? Then we have even exhaustion through the lips. You know, it's not the body's lips or its lips. You know, the, the lips are almost like detached from that body. And more so, the thing that's doing the acting is the exhaustion, right? That's the thing that's sliding through the body. The body's not tired. Its exhaustion is in the body and moving outward. And, you know, that sort of continues, I think, throughout just pretty consistently. Heads bowed, not anybody's head specifically, just a bunch of heads. The invisible, they drowse, the smell of this body among other bodies those shuttled back and forth it reflects sleep chasing bodies back into the borderless empire of the interior which well i have a lot of thoughts about it but i was i just i noticed that and i feel like it's very important to it's so deliberate and consistent that it's like it's got to be sort of intentional and i was curious if if you had picked up on that or had any thoughts about it I did. And I think body is the most used single word in the poem. I think it repeats more than anything else. It's used four times, I think, twice in one sentence. I was thinking about the speaker because even though, as you were saying, there's no I and the poem itself is careful about distance and all of the the degree to which individuals are being described, they are described as like this body over here, that body over there. It's not there's not like distinguishing features called out, as you were saying. And that's, again, kind of highlights the maybe a, a certain kind of critique of capitalism, where in capitalism, individuals don't matter. They're only worth whatever profits they can generate, or you're only worth whatever your job is. You know, you as an individual, your body, your interiority doesn't really matter. That borderless empire of the interior that you contain is kind of immaterial to the outside world in a capitalist structure. But particularly as relates to the presence or absence of a speaker, what I found interesting is that I felt like the speaker was on the subway car. Mm. And I felt like there was a presence to that. And it's never explicitly called out or stated, but it feels like somebody is reporting an event that they're in and reflecting on it. And that means of sort of creating presence without ever really saying, I'm here looking at this this is what I see was interesting to me because I did feel like the speaker was to a degree embodied, but they themselves are never described. And I wonder almost if the lack of specificity about all of the other people around lets you as the reader more quickly create another body for the speaker because there's just a bunch of bodies around. So you kind of figure the speaker must have one too. Yeah, it feels like, yeah, when you say I, on the one hand, it makes you maybe more of a tangible thing to the reader. Like you're identifying yourself. I am here. I am seeing this. I thought, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, it separates the speaker from the situation that they're in or the environment or what they're observing or the scene. So it's like if you're saying, I saw that, there is a distance that you are creating from that to you, right? You can say, I am not you, but you can't say, 
not like not you. Like there's no way to create distance between yourself and anything else without first being like, I am a thing. <laughs> right, you know? exactly. Yeah, you have to create yourself first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You have to create yourself first. So I think that's really right in that that it, the speaker isn't present as a discrete thing, but is like very, very present and perhaps like super present in the scene itself or is like a part of the scene in a, in a less distinguished way. Makes me think of there's this interview with Jenny Shia that I thought was really interesting in Bomb Magazine that we'll link to for sure. She was talking about the collection as a whole, but I felt like it might bear a little bit on this. And they were kind of asking about, you know, the relationship between I as in the letter I, but like me as a subject and I as an eyeball. And Shia says, much of the collection is about linking the eye as an eyeball with an eye, the subject, and thinking through the entanglements of gazes and visual encounters with power, selfhood, and presence. The speaker in these poems, especially in the first section, engages in the act of observation and renders certain aspects of seeing into language. But observing is never a passive absorption of visual stimuli. <laughs> the eye amplifies and tames. It heightens and erases. All right. Yeah, which is like, I'm like, all right, you're basically a preeminent scholar of your own work. You can write amazing poetry and also just be like, yeah, I'm just, uh, this is what it's doing in a brilliant way. So hats off. That's amazing. Um, also, there's just a lot to unpack there, but I think we've sort of been identifying some aspects of what she was talking about. One is it connects to what she had said about the poem itself as, you know, what what we choose or forget to see that there's with observation is not just recording what is there, right? That seeing is a both an encounter with power, as she said, but also is an act that holds a kind of power, especially when you're not just seeing, but you're like writing something that is sort of documenting, you know, what you've seen, because then you have this sort of choice of rendering certain things and not things. And so um, another thing that we sometimes talk about at close at the wonderful house of close talking is kind of the role of maybe defamiliarizing or making certain things strange as a way to highlight their existence. And in a way, the like there would be many ways to write about a scene on the subway or a scene on a train, and many ways to write about it in a way that's thinking about capitalism or private property or power relations or whatever. But in doing something that's like, exhaustion slides from the body through the lips first or the smell of this body among other bodies difference between saying like the smell of this body among other bodies or versus like this person smelled next to me or like i caught a whiff da 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 those are kind of like ways that make the perceiving like takes the perceiving act for granted in kind of a way, it makes it more natural. The way that the poem is written is a way that makes the actual perception of things come to the forefront 
in the same way that like a poem like and by Ray or Montrout is using language in a really weird way and it makes us think about language itself right there's this kind of there's so many different things that you can do strangely to accentuate one aspect or another um, and it seems like vision and perception is crucial both to the poem and to the the book as a whole to what end though i'm not sure that's the question i really like that having studied cultural history which is the blend of history and anthropology what they always say about anthropology is that it's to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange with the idea that you start to see similarities and connections and all sorts of different stuff and i think that's kind of what's going on here where it's taking you could maybe say in the most basic way this is just taking a subway ride and blowing out all the meaning that you could find in it by making certain things about it that you take for granted like gee everybody here is tired and after work and really looking at well what does it mean that a hundred people are all packed together in this subway car at the same hour every single day and they're so tired and it turns this everyday occurrence into something that fundamentally starts to feel really weird and uncomfortable and it does that by you know everything that we were just discussing it creates this level of distance and it you know problematizes different aspects of it and 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 it also takes really simple details about that experience like the person next to you is wearing a certain deodorant and you probably know because you're crammed right next to each other like the smell of this body among other bodies whether this body refers to the speaker or to the person to their right or to their left or holding onto the handrail in front of them or whatever and also underground the window is also a mirror because the subway tunnels are dark and the inter the interior of the subway is lit like you see a reflection in them you know and it so it's taking these little details but it's creating language around them that turns them into something kind of full of meaning i guess beyond just the fact of what is being described which like it's not perhaps a searing insight a lot of poems are out there doing that and that's kind of the point of a lot of poetry and a lot of poetic language is being used. But I think in the context of this poem and in the context of what you're describing, like it feels to me like the way that particularly those details are rendered is in the service of exactly what you were talking about. Yeah, and it makes me think it also, I mean, we probably probably touched on this, but what, what you had said about, you know, what can capitalism or what capitalism does to bodies or what or how it values you not for your individuality, right? Um, for but your ability to produce something or whatever. I mean, a basic way I, we sort of have talked around this, I think, but both accentuating the body in perception, but also like also having the distant sort of self. It is not a pronounced self, and highlighting those and making those strange is a way of making the experience of reading the poem like the idea of you as a person being less of a person because of the labor and capitalistic situation that you find yourself in as not just like an idea that like you can throw around and get angry about but like something that you kind of feel or like you know that the speaker is kind of feeling that and you're like oh like this is like really weird that you know we're not in a subway full of people i mean we are full of people but we're full of people who have been reduced or compressed or extracted in ways that make them feel less than and that yeah i think also you know the underground the window is also a mirror and then 
the last sentence, which we I think we got to get to, which is just like the clincher, so good. Uh, it reflects sleep chasing bodies back into the borderless empire of the interior. Well, first, hot diggity dog. Yeah. So good. Okay, for one, sounds are very good. There's some R sounds that are moving through in a beautiful way. We've got this underground. The window is also a mirror. We've got this mirror. Then we've got, it's interesting because in a prose poem, you know, rhymes are even more hidden, right, than they might be in a lineated kind of situation where like if you have two end rhymes, like rhyming couplets, it's like, oh, I see mirror and I see interior right below it on the same line at the end of the line. Oh, this seems like it's a rhyme. But here we have underground, the window is also a mirror. Just the end of a sentence. It reflects sleep chasing bodies back to the borderless empire of the interior. And this wouldn't be like, the second sentence is much longer, so the rhyme is delayed. But we've got empire, borderless, and then interior is so close to mirror in the sound. So it's just like borderless empire of the interior is beautiful in itself. Um, and also sort of echoes back to mirror and underground. Also, we're getting another kind of echo. It kind of was a return to the first sentence, I feel. Exhaustion slides from the body through the lips first. Partly, we're just getting sleep again. We're getting, you know, it. the mirror that is the window reflects sleep chasing bodies. But it's also another situation where the active thing is not the person, you know, the actual thing that has quote unquote, agency. It's rather sleep that is doing the chasing of the bodies, which is similar, sort of parallel to the way that the, the beginning opens with exhaustion slides from the body. Although in this situation, sleep is a much more aggressive force. The bodies are being chased. I, I just found that very pleasing, especially because prose poems in their choice not to be lineated, are making their formal qualities much quieter in some ways, in that you, whereas maybe in a lineated poem, you have both the sentence and the line that you're working with, whereas in the prose poem, it's kind of like all about the sentence. That's like the basic, or at least one way of thinking about it is that's the basic unit of meaning. And visually, you have much less like control because it's just like one sentence after another in a prose piece. So for Shia to introduce both that sort of tight sonic work at the end, but also that parallel structure like mirroring back to the beginning, I feel like is such a nice move and kind of needed. You know, we talk a lot about loud forms, forms being too loud, but forms can probably be too quiet. And prose poems would be the kind of, that's where you have that risk. To hop back to something you had mentioned earlier, the way that this poem puts emphasis on the body and, and moves emphasis away from the self, what this last line does is it flips that around. The emphasis is now on the borderless empire of the interior. It is about the self and sleep chases the body back into it. And it made me think of Caliban's famous speech 
from the tempest the isles full of noises be not afeard the isles full of noises sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not sometimes a thousand twangling instruments hum about my ears and sometimes and sometimes voices that if i were to wake after long sleep will make me sleep again and then in dreaming the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me that when i waked i cried to dream again and caliban in the tempest is under magical enslavement to Prospero. And so that speech, one of the interpretations of it is that what he's talking about is that like, at least in sleep, I can dream about all this great stuff. Like I'm getting riches from the heavens and and like he's kind of free in sleep is one of the interpretations. And at the end of this, I feel like there's a nod towards the idea that when you are asleep and you're dreaming, you're free from worldly concerns. You are one with the boundless empire of your own interior. And it is this time to yourself, like truly to yourself in your own like private property of your consciousness almost that no one can theoretically at least take from you. That makes me think of in that interview. And this is another thing where she says a lot of things and it's touching on it, but I don't know if it gives us answers, but it kind of introduces a perhaps discursive trampoline on which we may jump. I like this already. Uh, which is a crazy thing to say, but I've said it and it's been recorded. The interviewer actually asks her about the line, uh, the borderless empire of the interior. The interviewer is like, this is a crazy huge question, but what is the interior? How do we live there ethically without abandoning the exterior or what you call the outer world? And Shia says, in some poems in the book, the interior is equated with the mind, that vast and fluid terrain. So in some ways, that's kind of what we were talking about a little bit, where there's a, there's a freedom in the mind and the imagination. But then uh, she says, so much of everyday living involves performance, exposure, and projecting a solidity of self. One way to go about defining the interior is to mark it as the obverse or kind of the opposite of the public. The interior cast in that way is the realm of the private, the inviolable and inalienable. But the concept of interiority is also culturally determined. And she's talking about some other poems, poems such as Rootless, Long Nights and Borderless, some of her other poems in the book, seek to dismantle the false binary of interior-exterior and of the interior as some sort of gated enclosure. The Buddhist perspective, and there's uh, at least one poem that's about Buddhism specifically in the book. Uh, the Buddhist perspective sees the separate self, which oftentimes gets linked to interiority as illusory. I believe that too. The mind loves to find ways to draw barriers that aren't really there. Okay, there's a lot there. But thinking back to the idea of the freedom of the interior, or at least the, the having the refuge of the interior. One thing that's so interesting about the phrase, the borderless empire of the interior is also, of course, the word empire. And in the, this poem that's talking about private property, that's clearly talking about Manhattan. And as she was sort of saying in her introduction to the poem at the reading at the 92Y of national narratives, that word's obviously in echoing resonance with American empire. So the interior 
that these bodies are being chased back into is not an entirely, you know, unfraught place, of course, I guess. And also because so much of the poem has been talking about all, you know, all of us living on loan or just various heads bowed, but to what there seems to be another way of reading it or a, a complementary way of reading it where the interior is in fact a more extreme empire of late capitalism upon you or something that that is borderless, right? That when you have become subject to, you know, its power or its forces, whereas a physical empire or the exterior empire, you might be able to take a boat away from it <laughs> or fly to your cheap vacay in the Airbnb Barcelona land that's now becoming so crowded because of global empire uh, and feel like you've escaped oppressive day job. Should you be so lucky as to be one of the successful oppressed people who has uh, money to spend on Airbnbs in Barcelona, even if you can think you can escape it physically, there seems to be a sense at the end of it being inside you. And that kind of empire is much more intractable, perhaps, or hard to get away from. I love that you brought that up because I think it's so important, particularly when discussing, you know, as we've said, late capitalism and how it operates. There's a couple of different things I'm thinking of. The psychological effects of living under extreme economic stress have been well documented. So you have stress dreams about work because you're under so much pressure at work, like there is no escape in sleep. And that's also part of what I was thinking of when I was bringing up the aisle is full of noises is that, okay, one interpretation of that is Caliban escapes into his dreams and they're great. But what he's actually describing at the beginning of that and where the, the speech gets its name, be not afeared, the aisle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that bring delight and hurt not. It's actually like magical music that Prospero plays and creates that makes him go to sleep or like enchants the people who wash up on the shores to like follow these spectral noises. It's this really sinister means of control that Prospero exerts over the island. And what Caliban is describing is basically being put into an enchanted sleep by Prospero. So even in sleep, there's no escape for him. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. Yeah. Should we uh, read it again? Private Property by Jenny Shia. Exhaustion slides from the body through the lips first. The invisible are flush with it. They drowse on blue subway seats. Heads bowed, yes, but to what? This island of concrete and glass tied by rough hands. The smell of this body among other bodies. Negatives of another's pleasure. All of us living on loan, yet only some grasp the arrangement. Those shuttled back and forth, drifting to other far places. Underground, the window is also a mirror. It reflects sleep chasing bodies back to the borderless empire of the interior. so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. 
You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know, tweet at us, or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.